Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. On today's episode, we sat down with our very good friend Patrick Madden and Michael Eddy. Michael is the winemaker for Louis Martini and has been with them since 2005. He has put out consistent wines year after year that punch way over their price point. Every single one of them is great from the entry level all the way up to lot one. We got a little bit of insight with some cool things that they're doing with Sauv Blanc and Zen and maybe the not-so-distant future, another grape that we kind of talk about on the uh, podcast. It was great for us to do. We really enjoyed it. We hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. Right now on our website, we have our Zoom tasting for Daniel Dow. That is going to be on the 22nd at 6.30. They usually run about an hour, hour and a half. If you listened to the last episode, Daniel was great. We really enjoyed having him on, and I have no doubt he's going to do a great job for the Zoom tasting. Uh, Right after that, we are going to have Michael Eddy on. He is with Louis Martini, and he's going to do a Zoom tasting for us uh, early next month. So that's something to uh, also look forward to. We hope that you enjoy the podcast. Cheers. Cheers, gentlemen. Cheers. How are you? Cheers. Patrick, how are you, buddy? Great. Good to see you. Very good. Michael, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Beautiful. I'm uh, I'm excited to be here today. Uh, this is something that uh, we've wanted to do for quite some time. We wanted to get uh, Patrick Madden uh, on the podcast with us. And, and Michael, you are the uh, perfect person to bring on because we're big supporters of your wine and what you're doing. Yeah, so. Michael, Eddie, we're, drink- we're drinking your Money Rosso Cab right now. So... Uh... It's good to Fantastic. have. Fantastic! What vintage do you guys have? The 2014. I I I believe that's current release, is it not? Or maybe the 15s have released, but I think 14s are. It's definitely what we have. Yeah, 15 should be released, but I would expect 14s in most markets. That, it, that makes sense. It's drinking so well right now. I mean, this it's got just the right amount of age to it. It's just opened up uh, really well. We opened it probably, uh, what, an hour ago? And it, yep. it seems to be opening up in the glass really well right now. So uh, Great. I, go go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say I had the uh, 12, 2012 with uh, Christmas dinner, and it was showing absolutely incredibly. That makes sense. 12 was uh, probably one of my favorite vintages uh, in California as a whole for ready to drink, uh, you know, seven, yep. eight, nine years uh, of age. It, it's a beautiful vintage. So, um, so Michael, why don't you go ahead and uh, for our audience members, why don't you go ahead and tell us uh, a little bit about your history and what you brings you into uh, the world of winemaking and, and ultimately at Louis Martini? Well, you know, I, from a very young age, I had been very much into food and beverages, um, liked to cook at home, and uh, got a job at a restaurant when I was getting my undergrad degree, and that really fueled more interest. I was a biology major and started homebrewing beer, and that's what really brought together my academic interests, you know, microbiology, organic chemistry, uh, and it gave it kind of a practical application that was meaningful to me uh, ultimately decided to pursue the wine thing and um, really uh, went decided to go to UC Davis to get my master's and kind of the rest is history worked at Beaulieu Vineyard which is uh, another long-established winery in Napa Valley 
and in fact was founded in the 30s just as Martini was. Uh, but then went over to Rodney Strong, and then in 2005, uh, I joined the Gallo family and started work with Mike Martini, uh, specifically on the Sonoma County Cabernet, which is our most broadly distributed. Right. And uh, that's that's where I really started to get to know Mike. But eventually, in 2008, went over to Martini proper uh, and got to know the whole portfolio, more of the history, and gradually assumed more and more responsibility. And Eventually, Mike retired officially in early 15, and that brings us more or less to today. So what I've always been really fascinated with, uh, you you mentioned BV, you're, you're at Louis Martini now, with places, I, I like to say that uh, winemakers as a whole, they're almost artists, right? You get to see your expression of what Cabernet is of that year. You get to put your stamp on it. And it's always fascinated me with some of these uh, long-standing families uh, as Louis Martini. Michael, you know, you came on, you, you worked with him for several years, so you have his winemaking style. Uh, but uh, coming on to a big name like that, are you, do you have the creative freedom if you, you know, what barrels you want to use or, or how you want to produce the grape uh, in certain vintages? Or, or how does that work? Yeah, so I am unquestionably not trying to make any of the same wines that Louis M or Louis P or Mike Martini made. Um, but for me, being connected to the history provides inspiration <laughs> and also adds kind of a depth to what I do on a day-to-day basis. Being connected to a story, I found that meaningful actually at BV. I, I wasn't expecting that when I got out of school. I just wanted to work with great vineyards and make great wines. Uh, and I was surprised at how meaningful it was for me to be connected to uh, a heritage that is relatively long, at least by American standards. Um, and so, yeah, I have tons of freedom. I try to keep the, the wines in a style that is reasonably consistent with where we have been historically. Again, they're not the same wines. Um, but I would I usually describe our house style as California classic. We're definitely not old world by any stretch. But by the same token, we're not quite out on that really far end of the spectrum that's popular in Napa Valley these days, which is a real gooey, ultra-ripe style. <laughs> um, it's not to say I don't like those wines, I do, but I think maintaining a little bit of classic qualities, meaning uh, acidity and, and some tannin backbone uh, is is respectful of our past. Does and that answer the question? Yeah and, yeah, yeah. and in Florida, you know, you only have cab in Florida. That's uh, besides like you know, uh, maybe Gnarly Zen, and then we have, uh, I mean, Lot 1 is basically a blend, right? I mean, it's a Bordeaux blend? No, Lot 1 is a is a cab. In fact, it's been 100% cab except for two or three vintages, and even those vintages, we had like 2% Petit Sarah in it or something. So it's been pretty darn close to 100% cab since its inception. And you're making wines, though, but you're making wines from like just a good introductory wine that a, a normal person could pick up in a grocery store all the way up to lot one. So there's a really, you, you make a diverse quality and price wine. Yeah, from the uh, upper teens for our Sonoma County Cab up to, I think we're up to 200 bucks now on lot one, uh, or at least the coming releases will be at 200 bucks. So yeah, it's a pretty good breath. 
currently making, I want to say, uh, if I count real quick, I think it's nine different Cabernet Sauvignons I'm making. Wow. Are you and, good? you know, the, the challenge there is we make that many for a couple of reasons. One, it gives us a variety of price points for different occasions and, and different buyers and wine drinkers, but also gives a chance to showcase different styles. And that's what really excites me is being able to show the different faces of Cabernet Sauvignon, whether they be driven by sight or by winemaking techniques. Um, that's the fun part. I hate to uh, to beat a dead horse, but with so many uh, different vineyards and, and being spread out uh, amongst California, how have you been affected during the the time of COVID? I mean, have have you been shut down in any way or has it been, uh, I would imagine it's been at least some sort of a struggle for you? Um, well, it's been an inconvenience. Um, it hasn't been too bad an impact. It certainly has impacted our visitorship and our tasting room activity. Um, so that has been a little bit of a bummer as we've had to shut down or move to only reservation outdoor visits. Um, and since we just finished <laughs> renovating and opened our brand new tasting room in 2019, it was a little bit of a drag, but mm. from an operational standpoint in the winery, it hasn't been too bad. Clearly we've had to institute practices to keep people safe, you know, masks and social distancing and cleaning in, cleaning out with equipment, those kind of things. But you know, that's just a matter of building a habit, you know, training folks and building a habit. So we've been able to, to work through it, but looking forward to it being over though. <laughs> yeah, I think we all are. It's been, uh, I guess, a, a learning curve for the world, I suppose. Everyone's kind of having to rethink how they're going on day-to-day uh, -day practices. But I, I think, you know, one yeah. question, I, I had a question about, you know, with the Gallo family, you know, having so much um, land in Napa and Sonoma County, uh, I mean, is there any one place that you love the grapes to come out of? Like, is like I know you know Stagecoach now is another new location that you guys have. Uh, you know, one of my favorite vineyards is Monte Rosa. I just love the wines that come out of that. Is there any one spot that you've really loved that you like to create out of? Yeah, I mean, Monte Rosa is definitely one. It's hard not to love that place, and I, it, I always struggle to kind of explain to audiences because it's hard without going there. But it is one of those kind of magical places. You know, a lot of people have a, a special place, whether it be the beach or the mountains or the desert, where everything feels different. Your your senses are heightened. You know, you, your sense of smell, sound, um, it just makes you feel different. And Monterosso is one of those place, places. Even if you took the vineyard off of it, it would still be a pretty magical location. Um, but then having... 127-year-old vines, uh, having a pretty rich and interesting history, uh, and making some very, very unique and compelling wines. It uh, kind of brings it all together. And so that's a fantastic place. And it's a really nice counterpoint to Stagecoach because Stagecoach is much more modern, much newer, um, but every bit is recognized uh, and, and special. So those two together create a pretty fantastic pair of opportunities both from a just physical location that's beautiful but also um making some really amazing wines uh i do want to touch on something that you uh spoke about just for some of our uh, newer audience members or, or people who aren't uh as into the wine world 
something that's very fascinating for me is you getting to work with those old vines. Uh, and I would imagine that's been very fun for you and, and very interesting. But can you kind of explain a little bit what having 120, would you say 120 year old uh, vines, what that does for the wine? You know, that's a good question, um, and I think it's one a lot of people could debate, and, and I've talked to a lot of people about this, and, and I've heard some interesting theories. Um, when, when vines age, they tend to start to come into a little better natural balance. So a very young vine, let's call it, you know, first five years or so, uh, can be really exuberant. It can produce a lot of crop, a lot of canopy. Um, kind of like a teenager, right? Lots of energy, but not necessarily directed in all of the, the best directions. Um, and then as vines get to say 10 years old or so, they kind of start to settle in like, like an adult. Uh, well, not all adults, I guess, but <laughs> in general, like an adult, you know, a little more wise, a little more balanced, not quite as hard driving, but, uh, but a little more wisdom. And, and so the vines produce better quality with less intervention as they get to that age. Now, once you get to 50 to 100 years old, that's that's where you really get, it gets unusual. And I don't know that there's any technical reason to say that vines that are 50 plus years old should produce better fruit. But one of the really interesting hypotheses that someone offered to me once, is actually a secondhand hypothesis, um, was that what if really old blocks don't produce great quality because they're old, but they're old because they produce really great quality? In other words, when a block is really outstanding, if it doesn't come down with any severe disease or reason to pull it out, and it produces really great quality wines, your motivation to replant that block is a lot lower. And so maybe it's a chicken and egg thing. It's that it's not so much that when they get that old, they produce that great of wine, but that they've always produced really great wine. And so they've stuck around. Huh. I've never heard that before. I love that idea. Like, it's just, you know, it's a, just a good vine. It kind of, it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's really, it's good because it, it's good, you know? That's a very interesting mm -hmm. point. I've never thought about it that way, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, you know, I uh, think so. I, I, so for me, again, Monte Rosso Vineyard, one of my favorites. I have a, a beautiful painting of it in my kitchen, in my in my house. And um, I wanted to ask you, like, you know, the soil there, it's so beautiful, that, that color of that soil. And could you tell people, like, the difference between maybe the soil in the Monte Rosso Vineyard versus Stagecoach and how those two soils could affect uh, the quality of the grapes and the wine? Yeah, um, so the, the, as you mentioned, the soils of Monterosso are visually stunning. They're, what I tell people sometimes is there are blocks that literally look like the infield of a baseball diamond. I mean, they're <laughs> that red. Um, so, so visually, they're quite striking. And, and that redness is from, and in fact, that's where the name comes from. Monterosso means red mountain. And the, the color comes from a high iron content. So when iron oxidizes, it becomes rust or iron oxide. And those minerals in the soil do various things to the vine's ability to uptake nutrients. And so that's undoubtedly a part of the factor. But um, the interesting thing to me is that, particularly with Cabernet off of Monterosso, as it ages, 
it does seem to exhibit this kind of iron mineral quality, like a cast iron pan or or even a really you know rare steak has because because blood is red from iron as well. It has this really intriguing iron minerally note that I think is uh, a fingerprint of Cabernet off of that vineyard. Stagecoach is not as iron rich. Uh, I do believe those soils are volcanic, but what really stands out about Stagecoach is how rocky and uh, rugged the soils are. So far less fertile than Monterosso, not that Monterosso is an extremely fertile site, but there are like pyramids, literally, of rocks, several of them at Stagecoach, huge pyramids. I mean, you'd have to, you'd do some climbing to climb to the top of these piles of boulders, and they were all boulders that were pulled out to develop that vineyard. And in fact, Jan Cruff, the the gentleman who founded and planted Stagecoach, um, there were some blocks that he actually had to use dynamite in some spots because they couldn't get vines planted otherwise. And you walk through blocks and there's still sections where you kind of look at the ground and you go, oh my God, how, is it, how are these vines growing here? Because you'll cross this literal table of solid rock. Uh, so very, very different growing conditions. And I would describe the wines off of stagecoach as having a little bit of that rustic quality that the vineyard does. So it is, it sits above Napa Valley, right at the foot of Atlas Peak. And when you drive out there, it's you don't feel like you're in Napa Valley anymore. It is almost to me like you're in northern Mexico. It has this rugged, arid quality. It's kind of this low-lying scrub in the naturally growing areas. Um, and it makes wines that are a little more like that to me, a little more rugged, um, firm, maybe less classic, like Monterosso's pretty classically structured wines. It's really high acidity. Um, with Stagecoach, you get a little bit more of that rugged tannin structure. But two outstanding vineyards, very, very different styles, different soils, um, and actually different, a bit different in climate as well. Is there a uh, particular vineyard site or a particular area that you uh, like working in more than others or, or uh, Cabernet that you feel just produces exceptionally well out of all of your vineyard sites, anywhere that you, you work? I mean, Monterosso to me is the one that's the most distinct. Yeah. It has the most recognizable fingerprint of a vineyard. Cause I've worked with plenty of vineyards that make really great wine, but to have really great wine that is also very distinctive and has its very own personality is, is really rare. Is there a certain varietal that you like working with better than others, or is there one varietal too that maybe is super hard to work with that you, you know, always are trying to like figure it out? Good question. Um, so I would say my deepest experience as a winemaker is with Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, and I enjoy Cab. I would say, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the one I like to make the most, but it's the one that I feel I understand the most. So I feel the most capable with Cabernet Sauvignon. The way it behaves both in the vineyard and in the winery, I just feel like I understand much better uh, how to get a certain result out of Cabernet. I really, really enjoy making our gnarly vine Zinfandel, which comes off of those 
uh, nearly 130-year-old Zinfandel vines on Monterosso. That one is a lot of fun. Technically, it's it's a bit more challenging, um, quite a bit more actually. Uh, but that's probably the variety I enjoy making the most. What makes it more challenging for you? Um, frankly, a, a great deal of it is preventing stuff fermentation. So as you guys know, Zinfandel tends to, it's an early ripener. Mm-hmm. It reckons, in fact, it's usually what we kick off harvest with a martini. A martini and um, it gets very, very high sugar levels in addition to developing uh, shriveled or raisiny berries. And those high sugar levels are a real challenge to yeast. And so it really forces you to be very attentive to the other parameters that cause stress on your yeast population, such as temperature, um, uh, pH levels, et cetera. So uh, it just, it forces you to think about everything because stuck fermentations are one of the quickest ways to start to deteriorate wine quality. Once, once a fermentation starts to slow or stick on you, you have to be on that really rapidly. Um, and, and we're talking about fruit that is very valuable going into a very expensive wine. And so, you know, losing any significant number of fermenters in a year is really not acceptable. In addition to the fact that then that's potentially a block or a fermenter that will not be able to be put into the blend. So that's really the biggest technical challenges around primary fermentation and to some extent malolactic or secondary fermentation as well. Um, how, how, I know, you know, we don't see the whole lot of the whites here. Uh, you know, I've been to the winery a few times, um, and, uh, I've had lunch there with Mike Martini, you know, back when he was hanging out and was around all the time, but it, uh, the white wines, I know that you only create is only at the winery, at least, you know, for us, are those still challenges to you working with those? Or is that something like, Oh, I don't make a whole lot of this. I'm kind of excited to make that this year. Uh, the white? Yes. Yeah, uh, the white, so, uh, let's see, 2017, um, we made uh, a Napa Valley Sauvignon Blanc, and that was the first white table wine that we had made for Martini in a decade. Wow. And that was really exciting for me for a number of reasons. One, I love Sauvignon Blanc. Two, while it, while it can be a little stressful and intimidating, adding a new wine to your portfolio is an opportunity to really establish a style and, and put a, you know, a, a, a fingerprint on what it's going to be. So it's a little stressful because you're, you're kind of starting with a blank slate. You don't know exactly where it's going to go, but it's pretty exciting. And for me, to add on to that, that I do events, you know, where we'll taste wines, we'll have meals, and it's a real challenge to, you could do it, but it's very challenging to do a whole meal with nothing to cab or even cabins in and to have a white, you know, an aromatic white to start off to, either as a reception or a first course is really, really fantastic. So uh, that one was an absolute joy to, to, to kick off. I've, I've really enjoyed making that wine a lot. It's, it's obvious that you've been, uh, unbelievably consistent in your your winemaking style uh and you've been there for for quite some time and and every cab that you put out is always uh i mean phenomenal if if nothing else the price point on them is unbelievable 
um, even all the way up. I mean, that lot one crushes. It It's so good. And, you know, for the consumers, you get good scores, you know, from multiple publications. Right. And um, But, you know, I, I again, it's the consistency of the whole portfolio. It's very consistent every single year. Now, moving forward, and obvious, uh, obviously we love you at, at Louis Martini, and that's where we hope you stay. Is there anything that you – uh, see yourself wanting to make in the future any any grape styles that you're interested in uh, producing or or anything that you would like to do one day oh yeah I mean you know there's there's what I'd like to do personally but then there's also what makes sense to me and excites me from a martini perspective right and one of the ideas I've been throwing around now for a couple few years uh, you guys may be aware that at one time Martini made uh, Barbera, and it was actually a very, very well-known wine. I still go to events, you know, grand tastings and things, and we'll have people come up to me and tell me how much they loved the Barbera back in the '60s. <laughs> and so there's kind of this, there's this really, there's definitely a presence of nostalgia around that variety. And I've made a little bit of Barbera, not much, uh, although I will say. Actually, in December for my birthday, uh, I, I did a blind tasting of a, an Italian producer, Vietti, who I think produces some killer Barberas, and I was able to get all but one of their Barberas. Um, so I, I definitely have some excitement as a, for it as a variety of its own. Um, and so I've been kind of tossing this idea out there, doing at least something that gives a nod to the Barbera, whether it's a blend or not, I don't know, but uh, I think planting a, a small block of Barbera up at Monterosso could be really cool. Um, and again, as I mentioned earlier, that's kind of what is meaningful about being at Martini to me is, you know, being able to draw on that history as a source of inspiration and, and, and ideas to do something new and, and see where we're headed tomorrow. I, I really like the idea behind that. I think Barbera, uh, we, we do a lot of Italian wines in our shop. I yeah, mean, that's yeah. uh, anyone who knows Ed's Fine Wines, we have we have quite a bit of Italian. And next, next uh, this October, we should be taking our customers to Alba for the Truffle Festival, where we'll drink a lot of Barbera. Right. And, <laughs> and something that we've always thought is Barbera is something that's uh, so undervalued, I think, uh, or... It's not appreciated enough, I think, uh, to the normal everyday consumer. Anytime we put a Barbera in someone's hands, uh, they come back excited. It's it's so palatable, it's so enjoyable, and you don't see a whole heck of a lot of it coming out of California. Yeah. No, not at all. And I think it, it to some degree, runs against the grain of consumer trends at, from a high level. I'm talking about all wine consumers, but you know, Barbera is a fairly high acidity variety. And wine styles have gone more toward a, you know, sweeter, fatter style For in sure. the very broad market sense. And I'll be honest, I, I like a little um, contrarian quality uh, often. <laughs> and so that's something else I like about Barbera. It's a little bit more, again, classic, bright acidity, um, really good food wine, like outstanding food wine. So, Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm hoping I can sell it. I keep keep trying to talk to the business folks and the marketers and everybody. And, and I think maybe I'm making some headway. We'll see. Awesome. Well, I'm here to sell it whenever you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
that's uh even even being a contrarian i mean i would imagine especially as much cabernet as you're producing you're drinking a lot of wine getting a high acid wine is probably quite refreshing to you i i drink a, a lot of uh high acid wines a lot of high acid whites and even I, I drink a lot of Beaujolais myself just to to get away from some of, like you said, the, the consumer palate that we seem to be producing uh, or selling quite a bit of these days. Yeah. Um, yeah, no doubt. I, I agree. I Actually, I one of my other loves in the wine world is Cru Beaujolais. I've been in love with that since, well, I think almost right when I started making wine, um, I got exposed to that and very different winemaking techniques, you know, a lot of whole cluster fermentation, mm-hmm. um, and a variety. We just don't see that often a variety. I happen to love, I, I think Gamay is, is absolutely gorgeous and just juicy and satisfying. You are talking my language. I can't talk about it too much on this podcast because our listeners will hate me because I bring it up so much. Anthony, stop it. I'm such Anthony, a fan of Cru Beaujolais. So you just might have become one of my favorite winemakers in the world right now for saying that. All right, you guys drink your Beaujolais. I'll drink my corn off. <laughs> um, well... So, Michael, I don't know if you knew, but, you know, we have a Zoom tasting coming up with you on uh, the 12th, uh, February 12th. It, it's a Friday. I, I don't know if you even knew it, but, hey, buddy, you're doing a Zoom tasting with us and our customers. Um, I do, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, but it's going to be fun, too. So, this will be the first time we've done three cabs in a row where, you know, you're going to see the difference between Sonoma Alexander Valley and Napa, you know, and, and the nice part is to have you walking everybody through it and giving them you know that idea of why this wine is different because of where it's grown and the variety and the actual you know uh, cab clone that you're using and so we're really excited about that um um again we really appreciate you taking time out of your day i know you guys are really busy out there and uh we appreciate you coming on um and we'll see you on the uh the 12th of february yeah that sounds fantastic i mean you know, we, we talked about COVID and the negative impacts. I will say one of the positives is that it really has pushed us to think about how to connect to trade, to press, and to consumers in a different way. And last year, I was able, I think I did a couple virtual events uh, overseas, one in, one in Europe and, and one in Asia. And it's been really cool. I mean, it's certainly not the same thing as being in the room with folks. That, that clearly is better, but I get a lot out of, when I do travel, when I used to do travel, I get a lot out of learning from the people I'm making wines for because, you know, I can't drink all the wine I make. Um, <laughs> and I like to drink a variety of things. So ultimately, I'm making these wines for you guys, for your customers, et cetera, and to be able to, you know, get a little better idea, get feedback, um, hear perspectives on the wine. It's, it just makes me a better winemaker. So uh, I enjoy doing it. Well, I think that's a very good point that you brought up. There has been a lot of negative impact out of COVID, obviously, uh, but that has been a a big positive for us. Uh, We talked about it on our end of year uh, special podcast that we put out. Uh, You know, it's kind of allowed us to connect to a lot of people 
uh, around the world. I mean, we have listeners in, in multiple countries, uh, a ton of different states, and they're, they're very vocal. They get to talk to us and ask us questions, and they get to input who they want to hear on the podcast or what they want to hear us talking about. And then our Zooms. I mean, we have... Vermont, Philly. Everywhere. Uh, Orlando. I mean, you know, different states, uh, different cities in the state of Florida. So we have people around the country doing our Zoom tastings where, you know, we did tastings, you know, once or twice a week, every week in our store. Now we do less tastings, but we do tastings, you know, throughout the United States, which is really cool. We and love people that. can bring in their family members, you know, my son's in, in Connecticut, you mm-hmm. know, things like right. that. And yeah. they get to connect and bring family members together. And that's been uh, very special for us to see. So there has definitely been some positive impact. And, and that's a great point. Yeah, that's, that's really cool that you guys are able to exercise that as well and get something out of it. Yeah, it's all new, but uh, we're loving it, and uh, we re- again, we really appreciate you coming in. Thanks again. Uh, we'll see you online on the uh, February 12th, 6.30 p.m. Uh, the three packs can be purchased online or in the store, and uh, it's going to be a great night. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, you guys. Looking forward to it. Perfect. Thank Cheers. you. And there you have it, another one in the can. Again, the Daniel Dow Zoom Tasting is available for purchase right now on the website under Dow Zoom Tasting. And the Louis Martini one is going to be up any day now. We're putting together the final pricing on that and the cheese pairings. Everything's coming together. But you will have the information soon enough. We'll keep you posted on these episodes. Also, we do have our Live from the Cellar podcast t-shirts back in stock. They're uh, olive green and indigo blue. They're super comfortable and we love them. and, And they're here for you. They're on the website. Check it out. And we'll see you soon. Cheers.